Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey. Wednesday afternoon, Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online. MSLandBank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. You can text the show, C Spire text line 601-879-4395. Again, 601-879-4395. If your phone's a little rough around the edges, well, there's a place that can help you out with that. C Spire has certified repair locations from Brandon to Tupelo. They can fix any problem on any device from any carrier. In most cases, while you wait, stop by today. C Spire, customer inspired. Boys, happy Wednesday afternoon. Rippy, you were in uh, Pearl last night for the Ole Miss-Southern Miss game. That was a tight ball game for a long time, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. Yeah, weird game. Ole Miss had one hit through five innings, and then Southern really kind of threw up on themselves in the sense they walked the bases loaded, they had a dribbler that tied the game because it was too slow for a double play ball, had an error, and then the error kind of gave Ole Miss an extra breath of life. And to their credit, they capitalized on it. Laposter hits the double, all that. Turns into a route, but it, it was a close game for like most of the game. And uh, Ole Miss, another big offensive night when it's all said and done. So in their last four games, they've scored 12, 16, 12, and 11 runs. Rebels hosting Kentucky this weekend in a three-game series. Luke Johnson will join us in a little while. We'll talk a little bit more about the game last night, get some of his thoughts on it as well. It was not a great night in the, uh, in the SEC for ranked teams. You had three ranked teams that lost last night in midweek baseball games. What else are we going to get to this afternoon? Got some prop bets to uh, empty Brian Haydad's wallet on the Masters. All kinds of interesting stuff, Haydad, for you to dive in and uh, expound or or spread your golf expertise for uh, for everyone to uh, soak up. Of which I have so much, so that'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Borky, what's up with you? I probably had the most productive single day in my entire life today. You're oh, right. really? Yeah. So I did you buy a house? No, but that might be coming soon. Knock on wood. I went to an extremely important doctor's appointment this morning. Got my wife a new car tag. Got my wife new car insurance, and still managed to plan two thousand words worth of notes for this show, and watch the Masters Par Three contest uninterrupted. That is production. That's production. I don't want to ever hear from you. Oh, I don't have time to do this. I'd never, I I got up at like 6 o'clock to start the show today just so I could make sure that I had plenty of time for this appointment and also plenty of time to watch the Par 3 contest. But, you know, the, the other stuff is also important. Okay. Every, everything okay, Mr. Uh, had an important doctor's appointment? 
Everything is okay. Had a, a little bit of a scare this morning, but everything is fine, and um, we're, we're all good. But had a, a a nervous waiting room moment for a little while, so everything's okay though. You, you're throwing out clues, but you're leaving so many unanswered questions, and I just don't know if they're questions that you want to answer. Not yet, but I will here soon. Fair enough. Uh, a guy that does know what's going on with golf. Jim Gallagher Jr. works with the Golf Channel, former pro, a guy that has played in the Masters. He will join us a little bit later this afternoon. The Big 12 looks like they are getting ready to derail the whole let's hire a third assistant thing for college baseball. Great job, Big 12. Makes a whole lot of sense. Just tons of sense. Ugh, ridiculous. Cole Kublick going to join us. Uh, he was on the broadcast of the Grove Bowl on Saturday. Talk some Ole Miss football with him. We'll look at Mississippi State's matchup tonight. Bulldogs in action. And, hey, Dad, you are excited because this is the Game of Thrones theme night. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Game of Thrones theme night. I'm excited because I have no idea what they're going to do. I, I don't know how they're going to uh, to pull this one off. It, Game of the, Thrones the does not really lend itself to baseball. Yeah, the, I've seen the throne. It's not the Iron Throne. It's made of bats. Which is perfect hoping. for baseball. It's great. If there had been an actual iron throne, I would have gone and gotten a picture with it. But the bat throne, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Why? Because it's not the same. It's pretty. It cool, is the though. same. It's You're cool. tying it into baseball. It is not the same. It is not the iron throne, and therefore, it is not the same. But it's cool. You pick, I'll give you you pick cool. some strange hills to die on. You know. I guess. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm like, I'm just going to get a picture with it. This isn't like my my, my life philosophy. I'm not going to vote for it. It's just I'm not going to go get a picture with the bat throne. See, I disagree. I think you absolutely should go sit in the bat throne, have a picture taken of yourself, and should post it to uh, all of your various social media platforms. Maybe. It would perform well as far as engagement goes. Oh, I'm sure it would. They do need to get quotes right, though. If you don't. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here we go, Borky. If if he doesn't do this of his own volition, then my guess is Michael Borky, who by the way is terrible as a face shot, as a Photoshop artist, <laughs> will take his terrible photoshopping skills, and probably you're going to get Brian Haydad in a speedo in the bathroom chair. <laughs> if I had like one of those good computers with with real Photoshop, I could probably not be as embarrassing. But yeah, my skills are. It's an indictment on where I went to school because I did take a graphic design class, and that's the best mm. I can come up with. So, they did botch a quote though. That was that was yeah. Mississippi State baseball social media people get the quotes right. If you're going to do a theme night... they can't night, use that, though. They can't you say can what use the word die on social media, and it's okay. I don't know. Get I don't know. the quotes right. If you're going to do a theme night, do it right. Come on, now. I get the feeling there's going to be a lot of, there's gonna be a lot of well actuallys for me tonight. <laughs> Why can't I use the word die? Because of the, this was a thing. It said, in the Game of Thrones, you either win or you lose. The real quote is, in the Game of Thrones, you either lo- win or you die. And I just don't know that that's the the message that family-friendly MSU baseball is trying to send to people coming to the game tonight. Hmm. They should get a live dragon. <laughs> <laughs> They've had a live Campbell. How much harder can a dragon be? They need to dress up bully like Daenerys. Give him a blonde, or Jack. Give him a blonde wig and like some weird dress. That would be great. Uh 
Uh, what about the baseball game itself? Is it going to be interesting? Uh, I'm interested to see Jack Egan get his first start uh, of the season. He's pitched pretty well uh, in midweek and in relief on the weekends, and so he's going to get the start, obviously, because you know JT Ginn, his status is still up in the air. Nobody's said anything about that, but I have to assume that State is keeping Peyton Plumley and Keegan James ready for possible weekend starts. Okay. Do you – and we'll get into this more this afternoon. Is there anything leaking out? Is there any information about JT Ginn as to what's going on? Even when we talked with Chris Lamonis, I don't want to say he was evasive. I mean, he answered right. the questions, but he certainly did not – and it didn't feel like he wanted to, to dive into any specifics with regard to what might or might not be bothering JT Ginn. The rumor mill, which you would know this if you listen to the Thunder and Lightning podcast, available at supertalk.fm or anywhere – podcasts are found, uh, is that it's tendonitis. But that is a rumor. We don't have any real confirmation of that. And that being said, you know, I have tendonitis myself in my elbow every now and then, and I don't pitch. So I know how much that can possibly bother somebody. Um, I would imagine, and I'm just speculating now, that I won't, I won't be surprised if he doesn't start this weekend. They might okay. give him another weekend to rest. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I appreciate the uh, promotion for the Thunder and Lightning podcast, but uh, also for those who don't necessarily listen to it, it seems like this is a reasonable outlet to put that information oh, yeah. out as well. Absolutely. <laughs> just, just saying. Hey, it's like you got mad at me that I didn't listen to your podcast is. today. You should listen. It's great. Yeah, I'll, uh, I, I do check it out from time to time. Well, from time it. to time. Uh, again, you can text the show, 601-879-4395. Kind of a crazy night uh, to uh, what wrap up the NBA or get close to the end of the regular season uh, with the NBA last night. Uh, final games for Dirk Nowinski and Dwayne Wade. Lots of emotion there, but the big story of the night came prior to the Lakers game when Magic Johnson held an impromptu, unscheduled press conference where he said, yeah, I'm not going to be the president of basketball operations for the Lakers anymore because, really, I'm not having fun. And I don't know if you know... Now, now I'm paraphrasing. Ooh. I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I'm worth about half a billion dollars, and I kind of want to do what I want to do as opposed to working with all of these rules about what I can say, who I can say it to, and who I can spend time with. I'd like a glass of whatever he was drinking last night, because that was the most <laughs> rambling, incoherent. That was the strangest deal. Like that's the strangest story of this NBA season by far. That he, was bizarre. He found he LeBron's water Bus. bottle filled with the red wine. He met with Genie Bus for three hours earlier in the day. It was just like it was like talking about the future of the franchise. Then all of a sudden, on television, he was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, I quit." Yeah, the the thing that's most fascinating to me is. One, either how close that relationship or how much power he feels like she carries over it. You're, you're Magic Johnson. You've been successful in everything that you've done. You have basically defeated the HIV virus. You're one of the 50 all-time greatest players. You're the president of organization. You own, or at least one point owned, part of the Los Angeles Dodgers. You're like the only guy who's ever gotten to individually own Starbucks franchises. You've done everything, but you're scared to tell your boss, I quit. Fascinating stuff. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. 4,097 last night at Trustmark Park in Pearl for Southern Miss and Ole Miss. Winning pitcher for the Rebels was Austin Miller. Got to 3-0.
Sean Tweedy took his first loss of the season for Southern Miss. Falls to 5-1 and one on the year. And really for the first time all season had trouble with uh, location. Southern Miss jumped out to a one nothing lead in the top of the first. Ole Miss got a run back in the bottom of the first. Southern Miss took a 2-1 to one lead in the top of the second inning, and that held up until the bottom of the sixth when Ole Miss scored five runs uh, to go out in front 6-2. to two. The Rebels added a run in the seventh to make it 7-2, to two. four more runs in the bottom of the eighth to make it 11-2. to two. That was the final score. Eleven runs, nine hits, no errors last night for Ole Miss. Southern Miss, two runs, nine hits, and three errors. We've talked a lot this year with uh, with Scott Berry on Mondays throughout the season, and Rippy, one of the things that, that he's talked about a little bit, we haven't drilled down on this, is that they've not been as good defensively as some of his previous teams and what he would like to see. And that really kind of reared its head last night on some some semi-routine plays and then a couple of difficult plays as well with the three errors. Yeah, and I pretty much nailed that attendance number, don't you think? Uh, you refused to give an attendance number. You said your, your attendance estimate was uh, less than 6,500. What was it? 4,097. Which is greater. Yes, it is indeed less than 6,500. <laughs> yeah. Facts but only yeah, on so this show. I didn't think they were... I didn't think they were... Be, like, really, that one play where they got kind of... So the play that really turned the game was in the six. It's 2-2 two to two with two outs, and Kevin Graham hits one in between first and second. And Slater gets drawn off the bat because I think he thought he was going to make a play, but it ends up being too wide for him. And Gidry, the second baseman, fields it. And then they kind of had a quandary as to like who was going to cover the bag, Strickland or Slater. And Slater ended up kind of covering it late, but like he was at a weird angle and he botched the like the ca- catching the throw. Um, and then Ole Miss kind of blew the door open after that. I mean, Knox Laposer hits the two run double. Zabowski hits the single. So I mean, I didn't think. USM was terrible defensively for like most of the game, but that was a really crucial play that they didn't make. Yeah. Zach Phillips goes four and a third last night, gives up seven hits, allows two earned runs, did not walk a batter, and struck out six. Was he better last night? Mm. I yeah, a little bit, because it, it's I don't know. He's such a perplexing picture. Cause like his stuff is like his stuff is good, like other than like his fastball being down a little bit in velocity earlier in the year. Like the stuff has been fine, but he struggled with command. He struggled with walks, and then when he's made mistakes, he's made mistakes up in the zone with his fastball. And last night he didn't walk anybody, but he hit two batters, and then made a couple of mistakes. And so I think he was better because so he, it almost went to complete abject disaster in the second. Southern misloaded the bases, one out. Austin Miller quickly runs down the bullpen, starts getting loose, and then he gets two pop-outs to get out of the frame and then retires eight in a row and kind of mowed through the next two innings. And then he gets them to the fifth inning, which I thought was fairly significant. And then he allowed two base runners and with Matt Walner up, like they were going to make a change, even though they elected to intentionally walk with him. So like, yes, he was better. Like there was some positive signs there, got him to the fifth. That's more linked than they've been getting in the midweek, but not, not great. Um, Anthony Servidio was two for five. Gray Kessinger extended his games on base stretch. He was one for one, so he had one hit but walked three times and has now reached base safely in 22 or 23 consecutive games. Uh, Cole Zabowski goes one for four. Knox Laposer two for four with three runs batted in in the ballgame. Southern Miss got multiple hit games out of uh, Slater and Bowen. And also McGillis, Matt Walner in the game last night was one for three 
with a walk. So those are kind of the numbers from the game last night. Jared Wright, the starter for Southern Miss, went three innings, gave up one hit, only allowed one earned run, but he walked three. Tweedy came in, pitched two and a third, then it was Strickland, Lewis, and Ginn the rest of the way for uh, for Southern Miss. Uh, Ole Miss did this last night without the guy that controls the running game behind the plate in Cooper Johnson, who's also hitting three hundred, and also without the leading hitter on the team in Ryan Olenek. Does that point to anything? Does it does it matter to, to say you've got two regular starters that don't play in a midweek game and you still go out and get a nine-run win? I mean, I think there's something to be said for that, but I thought the story last night was LaPoster because I'm not sure. Like, the, It's interesting. Me and Colin had this debate on the podcast earlier. So Mike went about that game as if like he was going – like really – like trying to win it is such a like it's a bad phrase, but my point being is I, I'm not sure whether or not Cooper Johnson would have played because he hasn't usually been playing in the midweek. Uh, Thomas Dillard's been catching, but Dillard couldn't catch last night because they were down an outfielder with Olenek out. But the way Mike managed the game, going straight to Austin Miller and and Tyler Myers out of the bullpen, makes me think Cooper Johnson might have played because they needed to win the game. It counts the same RPI wise. But point being, Lapostas. Like these younger hitters haven't really gotten a whole lot of opportunities with this kind of veteran laden lineup, but he's made the most of them. He's like seven for twenty six with three walks and a homer. He was really good last night. He really kind of sparked the offense. They had one hit until he stepped up and hit that double that kind of broke the game open. I thought he was really good. So as far as freshmen that are contributing, Doug Nikhazy has locked down the the number two starter role uh, on the weekends. Knox Laposer, Kevin Graham. Is there anybody else that that's kind of I mean, Josh Hall's playing a lot. He's not necessarily an everyday starter, but you've kind of gotten to the point where, what, about three out of every four games you're seeing him come in as either a pinch runner or a defensive replacement. Yeah, and Graham and LaPosta are probably middle of the lineup guys next year, but it's tough. Like, pitching-wise, freshmen, like, it, there was more, like, to me, there was a little bit more of an opportunity for freshmen to help pitching-wise, but this lineup, you return seven and nine starters, mostly veteran hitters. Like, it's tough to crack it, but to Graham and LaPosta's credit, like, Graham in particular has cracked it, and then LaPosta's made the most of you know the opportunities afforded to him. Hey, Dad, what about first-year players from Mississippi State? We all know about JT Ginn, and obviously he is putting together a season that makes you think he is a freshman All-SEC player and could be a freshman All-American. We'll see where it goes for the rest of the year. What about other first-year guys? Because Mississippi State had a similar situation where it was, what, eight of nine position players were returning? Yeah. Not, not, not a lot of freshmen making big contributions. Brandon Smith has given them some good innings out of the bullpen. The freshman who has maybe the highest upside to me and is the most intriguing is Brad Cumbest, who has been really consistent at the plate. Two he's sport got some guy. Starts. Yeah, he's got some starts at, at, uh, at DH, and of course he's, he's playing football as well. So uh, like yesterday at practice he was in a non-contact jersey because obviously they expect him to play baseball uh, this weekend, and he's been sort of going back and forth between that. He'll obviously focus fully on baseball after this weekend when the spring game comes and goes. But he he looks like a, a, a potential uh, big bat in the future. He, he Good contact hitter, good speed. I mean, you you know you expect that he's an SEC football player. Uh, I mean, big kid. I, I've been pretty impressed with Cumbus so far. He's a guy who's I think has a bright future. Did I see that Mississippi State got a baseball commitment from a ninth grader last night? They got a twenty twenty two guy. Yeah, twenty twenty two. Yeah. I mean, that's, is this jumping the shark or, or are we well, getting to this point? I mean, it it happens I mean, in soccer. Point. I mean. Uh, I'm trying to think. A lot of the kids who are at Mississippi State right now committed to Mississippi State in ninth grade. I mean, that's just something that happened. Blaze Jordan is committed to Mississippi State, who's a, I believe he's he'll sign 
next year as the number one player in the state, one of the top players in the country, uh, assuming you know he'll probably be an MLB guy, but he's committed to state right now. He's been committed since he was in eighth grade. I mean, baseball commitments are just a little different than football for, for whatever reason. I think we and, need to and the, implement a universal age cap on scholarship offers because we've got football teams now. I think Arkansas is the most recent one that offered a kid – uh, who was 2026 20, was his recruiting class year, which is what sixth grade, 13 yeah, years think... old, uh, that kind of thing, or 12 years old. That kind of thing needs to stop. That freshman in high school, fine, because I started thinking about college when I was a freshman in high school. My parents really focused me in on college, but before that, there needs to be some kind of cap. We don't need to be pressing seventh and eighth graders on college choices when they should be out running around riding their bikes and scraping their knees, you know? Yeah, what, in what other industry is it not weird for, like, adults to be talking to sixth graders like that? Like, what did they, like, AOL screen name message them? Like, how, like, how does that work? How do you recruit Ooh, a sixth creepy. grader? Stop. Yeah. I don't know how it don't, works, but it's part of, yeah. part of the gig, evidently. Yeah, it certainly is. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it happens in college softball it happens in soccer where you get early early commitments and it's uh, moving and even to not an early commitment but somebody like malik newman i mean college coaches were talking to him back in seventh grade you know the the, the, the highly elite guys they start hearing from coaches at an, at an early early age yeah I, I can't stand that you you don't need an adult man talking to a seventh grader about coming to college to play for me i just i can't i don't that idea makes me uncomfortable Kevin points out on the Sports Talk Mississippi Twitter feed at Sports Talk M-I-S-S, Luke Alexander committed to state baseball in the eighth grade. Yeah. I mean, it happens. It yeah, happens it definitely happens. In baseball in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Mississippi with you. And to have you along on this Wednesday afternoon. Par 3 contest is in the books. The real tournament begins tomorrow. That tournament is the Masters at Augusta National. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. Always, always, always enjoy our conversations with Jim Gallagher, Jr., he is originally from Pennsylvania, went to school at the University of Tennessee, resides in Greenwood, and might or might not be the best golfer in his family. Jim, what's up, man? Uh, I'm just being abused by you on the air all over the state. No big deal. Okay. Well, good. I'm, I'm just glad to know that we're uh, on the same page. Although, I feel like you kind of cheated on us a little bit hanging out with JT. Well, I know. I, 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 you know I, you're still my first. You know, I do <laughs> I, I just, first love, I had, I, you know. JT and I go back a long way, and and I just had to, you know, I, and I got to see my friend Steve Azar. So I've really gone out on you now. So I'm kind of, I've really crossed the line. I know. Yeah, well, Azar is a little more A list than I am anyway. So I, uh, I'm not going to hold that against you. JT's one thing. Azar probably a different story. Um, I, I want to talk about the Masters, but my. The most fun that I have with you is when you just get to tell golf stories, and I'm so intrigued by your time on tour, a um, couple of top tens and majors at the uh, at the PGA. I was listening to a conversation, or I guess it was a podcast that Jim Rome did with Steve Elkington, who seems like quite the character, 
And it made me think, I, I'm curious who the most interesting guy that you played with was. Most interesting guy. Oh, boy. Uh, I always enjoyed my times around Fuzzy Zeller because okay. he was exactly what you saw on the course, off the course, and he never changed. That was him. Uh, he just, I think a lot of Fuzzies, and Trevino as well, a lot of that outgoing personalities were nerves uh, to take the pressure off. I think that's just how they relieved it. But they were the same. You know, I, I, I knew Fuzzy a little bit better than I did Lee, of course, because we both, I grew up in Indiana, as did he. But, uh, you know, that was the cool part is just he always, when I would come up to him when I was first on tour, is just like, hey, Fuzz, I mean, this, this, and this. He goes, just cool, go play golf. Don't worry about it. You know, he was always great like that. And, uh, you know, this is a guy that was, you know, he won the Masters first time around it. And he just was an incredible player. And, you know, I just loved the I, I could never be like him playing. I had to be a little more, a little more intense, I guess. I get fired up and whatever. But he was just happy go lucky. But that was his personality on and off the golf course. And he would be one of the guys I would be interested in. I mean, I played with a lot of greats. I mean, of course, one of my fondest moments is Augusta is playing with Jack Nicklaus. I think it was the second round. And walking up 18 with him, you know, we're walking up, we're in the last 100 yards. Of course, the crowd's standing up and the patrons, I shouldn't say, standing up. And I go, here, go. And he let me, he said, no, we're walking up together. And I just thought that was a cool moment for someone that was as, you know, awesome as he was to, to do so what that. What year would that have been? That might have been the last, that was probably 90, I think that was 94 or 5. I'd have to look back. Uh, it was just one of those that, and he actually had played good the first couple of days. And, you know, he played good there all the time. But uh, it was just really a cool moment uh, and, and just to walk up there with him. And I, and I remember last year when his grandson made the hole-in-one, and I wrote him a letter and just, you know, I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd seen as a fan uh, of golf. And, and I, he, he told me it's one of the more special moments he'd had. And I, you could tell. I mean, you know, when you have your kids and they do great things, it's really cool. But to have your grandson do something at that level is, and, and to do it on that stage is just, I would have no idea what that feels like. But it would be, you, you would blow up with pride, no question about it. Because I know how I am with my, with my kids uh, and the accomplishments they've had throughout the years. Just, and then just watching my little grandson stuff he does. Was Jack always gracious or was there a point, and I know you may not have, you didn't know him in the 70s and, and the 80s, but was there a point where his demeanor and the way he was with other people shifted on the course kind of with, with age and maturity and success, or, or was he kind of always like that? No, he was like that. I think what you've seen is a guy, you know, I, I there's no question. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean it's bad when I say he was a great loser, but he was great in losing. He was gracious. You know, he wanted to beat you as bad as anybody else, but he was always gracious and and complimentary. You never felt he never was in your face. I think when he first got out on tour, he was beating the great Arnold Palmer, the king, and the fans were more Arnie lovers, you know, Arnie's army. And he kind of broke into that, and I don't think he was accepted on tour because of that. But as time went on, we realized we're watching greatness. And I would say now, in his age, in his 70s, he and, and Barbara, and just like me, my wife Sissy, every great man has a great wife or someone behind him like that. Uh, to really just provide that stability and to keep us in line when we're popping out of line. My wife does it probably more than most, but it's just kind of like one of those. <laughs> that things. means you pop Barbara out of line more than most. Well, that's probably true too. You know, I just have a problem with that. I can't stay. I can't stay in my lane, bro. Can't stay in my lane. But I, I understand. Uh, you know, it's really cool just to see how he goes around in charity. 
and, and, and uses his, I guess, celebrity or his greatness now to help hospitals and kids and all those things. And I think having as many grandkids that he's had, I think that's been part of that too. And you've seen a little more of a Jack Nicholas. It's not the competitor, but more of the person that he, he really truly was. And I think a lot of that was our Midwest, you know, values growing up like that, which I always tell people, even though I was born in Pennsylvania, I lived there a month, I grew up in Indiana, and there's a lot of the same values as we have in Mississippi, a lot of the same wonderful people. Uh, and that's why I think when I when I came down here, I think that was the coolest part is, you know, always was teased about being a Yankee or from the North or whatever. But, you know, I knew, I, you know, and I was called some other kind of Yankee, if you know, but, but let's mm-hmm. say but, uh, the bottom line is uh, I knew I was accepted. I used to do junior clinics, all that, when I would do the Clarion Ledger and I was with the Mississippians in bold. That's when I knew that everybody really kind of, you know, embraced me. A lot of it was because I have a sweet wife. I get that. So that was a big plus for me. I married way over my head. But, you know, that's the cool part is, is when I made that transition. I've lived here more than half my life so and raised my kids here. So, I mean, those are the cool things. You know, and it was like when I played on tour, it was great. You're out there, and it's not like it is now. But when I came home, it was back to normal life, people having real problems and real issues and trying to just get through life and just see real things. And it, I appreciated sometimes more things when I came home than maybe when I was out there. You get in this fantasy land. I know you got a courtesy, excuse me, courtesy car. You got somebody doing all this stuff for you. And now it's gone even crazier. Uh, they're playing for so much money. And, and, you know, that's the thing that was so great about me living in Greenwood is coming back to reality. And it always kind of kept me rooted. And that was a big plus for me. You ever play with Raymond Floyd? Oh, yes. Loved Raymond. Uh, got paired with him at Hartford for the first time, and we're and I think I top fifteen or something. And I just remember those eyes, and he just would stare right through you. And a great competitor, and we're you know just playing hard. And he was very cordial, very nice, but he was still a tough competitor. But the thing I remember is when we walked off, he shook my hand. He said, "Son, you're going to be a great player someday," and that just that meant the world to me. And, and that's the thing. And not that I needed to be patted on the back, I just kind of fought my confidence a little bit. I mean, I just a little kid growing up and small town Marion, Indiana. Uh, Dad was a club pro. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I grew up working at the club, not being the member. And I, I just always had not an inferiority complex, but just I always was striving to get the top players' approval and learn from them. And he was one of those guys that did that. Plus, I was on the Ryder Cup team with him, and he was awesome. Loved Raymond Floyd. He's just the best, still do. And, uh, you know, one of the all-time competitors. But, you know, just someone you really would learn from. And someone like that tells you that. You know, that means so much to a young player. And, and, Absolutely. and you know, you see that now with a few guys doing that. So, so what was your, what was your road to the tour? Uh, I mean, you, you had that run in 91 and 92 when you played great. You won a couple of times in, in 95. Um, uh, and then maybe didn't play as much later in the 90s. But to get to the tour where you were regularly out there on a week in, week out basis, what, what was the path? That's a great question because it wasn't like what you saw 90 to 96. Uh, I got my, I went to tour school in 83, got my card. I played two tournaments. I only got in two tournaments through May. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I finished 26th in the tour school and I can't get in tournaments. And, you know, it was a grind. I, I finished the conditional status, went back to tour school, missed by a shot, played a handful of events on the tour. But actually, there was a thing which was like a pre web.com tour. There were, I think, six events that year. The leading money winner got their card. And I was a leading money winner, and that's when I won the back then. It was called the Bagnolia Classic House at Sanderson Farms. But that's when I won in Hattiesburg in 85, and I got my card back that year. 
uh, kept it again, and then locked. So was the it mini again. tour? Was that like the Ben Hogan tour back then? Like it even before be the Nike tour? Just, yes, it was just before the Ben Hogan tour started. Now the year before that, there were about ten events, but it got back down, knocked down to six. It was only on the schedule for about two or three years, and then the Hogan tour kind of was coming back in. Uh, so that's how I got back on tour, and I kept it for a year or so. Lost my card again. And then I started Monday qualifying. I even played some mini tour events, and I got to those where you didn't even know if the check was going to come through. And and I just like, wow, this is tough. And I was at that crossroads. Am I going to keep going? I mean, I've had my card. I've been on the big show, but now I'm not even in the and I'm not even in the minor leagues. I'm single leg ball at best. Wow. And uh, I Monday hey, hey, qualified Jim. my way. Go ahead. No, I was just. Do you by chance have time to hang with us through the break and talk for a few more minutes? Absolutely, I got all day. Beautiful. I haven't asked you at all about the Masters, and I want to hear about this this transition point where you had to make a decision, am I going to che- keep chasing this dream, or do I have to go get a real job? Not that playing professional golf isn't a job, but uh, really interested to hear more about that. We'll take a quick okay, time cool. out. We're going to spend a little bit more time with Jim Gallagher Jr. on the Farm Bureau phone line. Great conversation. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank studio. Sports Talk Mississippi. Okay. I guess now i got to apologize. If, if I wasn't nice to him right out of the gate and I complained about him going on JT, Jim agrees to hang for another segment. So uh, my, my bad. I, I'll be I nice going you. forward. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I want to I hear the end of that story. If you're just joining us, if you just jumped in the car, we're talking with Jim Gallagher Jr., and I ask him about kind of his road to making it on the PGA Tour. It, it's not like how it worked for Tiger Woods for most guys that get there. And the process was a lot different even for you in the mid-'80s. You said that, what, around 19, what, 87, 88, 89, you kind of hit a crossroads where you had to make a decision? Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money in the mini-tours. Like I said, they weren't you weren't sure if you're going to get paid. There were only a couple. The Goosey Tour in Florida was great, but, I mean, I lived in Indiana most of the year and part of the year down there. And so – and I wasn't getting in any tour events, obviously, because I didn't have my card. I could Monday qualify, and I played pretty well. But it was like, you got to make a living. I wasn't married. You know, I didn't have any responsibilities other than to myself. And uh, I just kind of got on a roll in the summer, made a bunch of them, and I finished second at Milwaukee. And that kind of got me on that going in the right direction. And I actually would occasionally, uh, they'd give me an exemption at a tournament late, and I'd go take advantage of it. And I remember coming down the last event was in Tallahassee, and I had to finish in the top 30. And I, I parred, uh, I think I birdied 17, and I made a good two-putt at 18, and I walked off. And, and, Richard, I literally could not count past eight guys on the leaderboard to see where I finished. I was that nervous. And I ended wow. up, long story short, as I made it. And I made it by, you know, two people. Finished 124th, I think, that year. So, uh, And then from that on, I was rocking and rolling. And, you know, I'd met Sissy about that time, and we started dating about that time. I mean, I remember her dad going like, well, what's he going to do for a job, you know? What's he going to do for a living? You know, you're all going to get married. You know, he doesn't even have his card. And so, you know, I ended up getting my card, and she got her card that same year. And, and um, you know, of course, she got hurt and had to quit. And, but, you know, that's the time when it just kind of skyrocketed for about a five- or six-year period where, you know, I played some of the best golf. I obviously played my life at some of the best in the world against the best in the world. And, uh, you know, really a cool run there for about six, seven years. Jim, was there a moment where you said, doggone it, I belong. I, I am where I'm supposed to be. I'm not out of my league. Yeah, I know Jack's out here. Yeah, I know Ray Floyd's out here, all these other guys, but I belong out here. 
Yeah, I think the Monday qualifying, I think getting my card that way for the third different time, three different ways to get my card. But I think when I finally won at Milwaukee, that's when mm-hmm. I realized I belong and I'm good enough to make it. And I mean, that was 1990. So that was six years of grinding it out. And, and you know, I wasn't making the, the big money these guys were making. Uh, you know, I think, I don't even remember when my winning person, still a lot more money than the average guy. I'm not whining about that. But, uh, you know, just, you know, you always dreamed about it, but did you really think it was going to come true? And it did. I just think, you know, I think just the hardships of going like, oh, I got it. No, I don't. I got it. No, I don't. You know, you just kept getting knocked down. And it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's that it's that trip going down that, that road that you don't give up and you keep going. And there were times I was about ready to quit, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I, mean, I had a degree from Tennessee, a marketing degree, but I didn't want to do that. It's not what I loved. I loved golf. And I, you know, I knew that's what I was. I think just my wife's encouragement, Sissy, was always like she knew it was in there. And, I, and she just allowed it to come out, that confidence in myself. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't have done the, I wouldn't have been the successful player I was without her. I mean, you she shared with me. She kind of she lived her dream because she got hurt and couldn't play it through me, too. And so we lived yeah. it together, and we lived it with Mary Langdon and Thomas on the road uh, up through 95 and 6. And I think when they quit traveling and then Kathleen was born in 96, I just kind of, you know – I don't know, I went through that stage where I didn't have enough money to live forever, but I was just like, you know, I want to be home. And, and I didn't. I lost my card in 2000, and it was just like when I was on the road, I wanted to be home. When I was home, I wanted to be on the road. You know, I fought that for a while. And then I took the TV gig with the USA Network in 2002, did that for four years, Champion Store, now with Golf Channel. But, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs. It wasn't always great, and, and uh, but it made me stronger. Uh, but, you know, I think now towards the end, which I, I just lost that – that edge, and you got to have an edge, and that's what you see this week at Augusta. I mean, Tiger Woods to see what he's doing is insane. I mean, it looked like he was done, and I think it's the point where just the basic decision making of playing golf. Everybody out there listening knows what I'm talking about. You haven't played all winter. You get out there, and it's just like you know how far an eight, but you don't trust how far the eight iron goes. When you're playing full time, you trust every decision you make because it's second nature. And I think when you lose that competitive edge which is easy to do. He took two or three years off from playing. And now he's 40, early 40s and competing some of the, against some of the best that's ever played. And uh, just phenomenal. And he's got like the second play. best odds out there to win the Masters this year. I would be, I would pick him. I would pick him. It would be either he or Justin Rose. Those are my two guys. And I haven't looked deep into it because I'm not really working this week, but just as a, you know, a fan of watching, I, I think those two guys are hard to pick against. I just think Tiger, you know, it's just he has so much confidence around there. And, you know, he knows how to play it. And Augusta National is pretty easy off the tee. And it's easy to make putts inside 10 feet because they're so pure. It's when you get it outside that distance. I mean, that's when you start three-putting. So if you miss it on the wrong part of the green or the wrong side of the hole, that's what makes Augusta National so tough. That's why guys struggle. And you got to know that as a, a veteran there. Oh, if that pin's over here, uh-uh, i got to hit it over here to use the slopes. And that's why you rarely see a, a guy like Fuzzy Zeller win first time around. Do you remember? Uh, so you, you won in Memphis in '95 at mm-hmm. uh, at the FedEx St. Jude. Do you remember what the winner's check was? Oh, two seventy maybe. Two and a quarter. That, is that what it was? Two and a quarter. Now, yeah. Two, two, like, yeah. Okay. Total total purse was one point two five. You won two hundred twenty five thousand dollars. You know what Dustin Johnson won in Memphis last year? 
1.2 million. <laughs> almost 1.2. $1,188,000. $1, he won almost the entire purse from the year you won. I know. Well, and I'll say this, and, it, and this is not to me meaning anything other than what I kind of looked it up. I mean, someone says, why weren't you exempt on the Champions Tour, you know, with five wins? Well, fortunately, I made $6 million playing, which is a lot of money. I'm not getting that wrong. But I kind of calculated in my own little brain, if it was in current Tiger money, as I call it, I probably mm-hmm. would have made $42 million in my year, in my career. Which would put you top but, 25 all time. Yeah, which is that shows you how much it's changed since I really quit playing in 2000. That's only 20 years ago. That's it's how crazy. Funny. It's amazing. And, and, you know, hey, these guys work their fannies off. They're in great shape. They're great athletes. They're probably better than we were because of the ability with, you know. And I say that in Mississippi golf. We got great instructors like BJ Trollio and Tim Elverton up at Old Waver. We got guys like that, great club pros around here. But we got great golf courses now that we maybe didn't have when I first moved here 30 years ago. Yeah. So these hey, tell me about the book you and VJ are writing. Only one shot, and uh, it's it's. We've been talking about it. It kind of talks about my career, but it also puts in junior golf. Uh, what's it like to get your kids started in junior golf? What are the kind of the things to get them ready for high school golf, college golf? Kind of those experiences. Some of the things I went through with my dad talks about what he did with me. Uh, BJ's about finished on it, and it's going to be really cool. And, and you know, I'm going to try to do a podcast and try to get it out there because we want to get the message out. Because a lot of parents ask me. You know, when do you get your kids started? I mean, how did you get your kids? My, you know, two girls played college golf. Thomas, of course, played high school golf and all that. But it was like, how did you get your kids to do that? Well, first of all, they got to love it. And, yeah. you know, it was probably tough, I would think, for my girls to follow their mama, who's won 12 state ams, or even the career I had. But I don't know if they loved it as much as we did, but we allowed them and gave them chances to go out there. And I think when you see, and you see golf, not quite like tennis maybe, but in times you see parents that really push their kids really, really hard, and you know this because you've been around sports long enough, those are the parents that probably never played a sport. The ones who have actually played a sport and been in that arena are a little more patient. They may be still tough on them, but they're not as hard pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. Because if you're not careful, you push them over the edge. And that's kind of what the book's hitting into that stuff my dad would do to keep me interested. And um, it's kind of cool to, to pass that story on because it was just my the way my dad did it was different. I mean, we didn't have cameras. I didn't see my swing until I was almost in college or out of college on video. We didn't have that kind of stuff. And now they've got their phones. They send it to their instructor. Boom, it's right there. Uh, yeah. So times have really changed, and probably for the better. I mean, you know, they talk about moving the ball back, but hey, let's just watch these guys. They're great. They're awesome. What they do. You know? I, I'll make you a deal if if you're interested in it. And I know you've got lots of ways to promote it. You can come on the show and talk about the book anytime. But I would love to sit down with you and with VJ, and we'll get the microphones out. We'll go sit in the in the pro shop at uh, at Old Waverly, and we'll go for as long as we need to. We'll put together a podcast and we'll put it out there for uh, for everybody to hear. We'd love to do it. That's awesome. That, I'll hold you to it. I'll definitely want to do that because I think VJ is one of the best young instructors. I know he's 40 now, but he's one of the best instructors we have in the Southeast, and we've got him right here at Old Waverly. And Tim Yelverton's a wonderful teacher as well. But mm-hmm. VJ is a guy that doesn't want to go all over the tours and chase these guys. You've got Allie McDonald, who just sent a six at the A&A, the LPGA major, first major of the year last week. I mean, he teaches her. He's got Chad, Chad Rain. He's got several other people. So he's taught kids, and the junior program he's created at Old Waverly is the future of golf, and that's what you have to do. I mean, it has to start at the junior level. It does it in every other sport, and it's hard for golf because every kid wants to be around their buddies, and they want to play the team sports. And I think that's the PJ Junior League's trying to tap into that a little bit, but 
You know, you got to yep. love golf to want to do it. And, and, and I remember growing up, when you played golf, it was a lot like playing the piano. You love to do it. You just didn't want to see it. I see you doing it. You know? Jim, let's continue that, this conversation soon, man. I can't thank you enough for your time today. Always enjoy the visits and uh, look forward to chatting soon. All right. We'll talk with you and VJ someday down the line. Appreciate it. Love it. Love it. VJ uh, Torley, any status updates with regard to his health? Did not start game two against Tennessee. Started game three, only went an inning. And Chris Lamona said he just didn't look right, and it didn't look to him like he felt right. Right. Like we said earlier in the show, the the rumor mill says that it, it's just tendonitis. Um, we'll see if that happens. You know, t- tonight after the game will be our first chance to speak with Lamonis uh, since uh, since uh, well for me since last week. Um, so you know, hopefully we'll get an update after that. Just follow me on Twitter at Brian Hayden and follow at Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll have the video of his post game uh, press conference at Sports Talk Miss. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Like I said, just from what I'm hearing, you know, around the uh, around the campfire, I guess you could say, I, I don't know that he'll get the start this weekend. They might hold him out another week to rest, but we'll see where it goes. Is that a literal campfire or figurative? Uh, it, is, it is a figurative uh, campfire. <laughs> Jake Mangum leading off, playing center field. Jordan Westberg's hitting second at short. Tanner Allen at first in the three-hole. Elijah McNamee in right field. Justin Foscue playing second, batting fifth. Rowdy Jordan in left. Dustin Skelton catching. Josh Hatcher is the DH tonight. And Gunnar Halter draws the start at third base tonight for That's his first start at that position. He played a little third last weekend. State's still trying to figure out some things in the infield there. Foscue's been pretty solid at second, so he might be there for good. And then between Halter and they they gave Marshall Gilbert a few starts last weekend, Uh, we'll see what happens at the third base position. So uh, Jack Egan going to get the start on the mound. Do, does the the injury with JT Ginn does it cause extra concern for bullpen issues? Are there bullpen issues? There are definitely bullpen issues. I mean, State's bullpen has been problematic this year for sure. Um, I don't know that Ginn being out exposes anything because I think those issues were we were seeing them crop up uh, before he before this injury. Um, but state, yeah, they definitely, you know, they need to get a good start tonight out of Jack Egan. They haven't really had a good midweek start in a few weeks. Uh, Eric Sarantola has not pitched well in the midweek, and then Peyton Plumley, when he's gotten the opportunity in the midweek, has not been great either. He, he some, for somehow has pitched better on the weekends than he's pitched uh, against the midweek competition. So, state would like to see Egan get into the fourth inning, maybe even the fifth inning tonight, and give that bullpen a, a bull, bullpen a little bit of a break, not to have to use your main weekend guys. Guys like Lee Belt and Barlow uh, and, and Colby White. Let them rest up for this weekend. Of course, Cole Gordon as well. And see what you can just you know piece together after the fifth inning if, if he can get you that far. Hey, WNBA draft is tonight. How much discussion is there about Tierra McCallan going number one overall? It's with with the Inescu girl staying at Oregon for her senior year. It, it appears that that's going to be the case, and she will go number one to Las Vegas. There have been some mocks that I had seen her going down to number three with Indiana, which I thought would have been cool because it would have reunited her with Victoria Vivians, who's out for this this season coming up. Actually, when she tore her ACL in the off season, but would have been a, a nice reunion there. But it looks like now uh, McCowan will go number one, so that means that uh, Las Vegas will have Asia Wilson and Tierra McCowan in their front court. That is a uh, that's pretty, that's pretty formidable. That's a team I don't think they'll be drafted number one next year. No. No, it's um, – how about that for a one-two punch? 
down yeah. low. And those are two girls that were sort of rivals in college. You know, that, that I don't know if there was bad blood, but they were they definitely went at each other when they played each other, and now they'll be teammates. That'll be interesting to watch. The um, the awards list this year for Tierra McCowan just uh, spectacular. First team. Uh, All-American from ESPNW, AP, All-America first team, USBWA. She was on the first team All-America squad for the Wooden Award, for the Senior Class Award, and the uh, WBCA. So uh, a consensus All-American, um, no doubt, for Tierra yeah, McCown. As, as she should be, no, no question about it. Yeah, that's pretty cool, too, um, that, that you, you could be looking at the number one overall pick. We'll see if that turns out to be the case or not, but... Uh, given the numbers she's put up and the physical presence that she brings, kind of be hard to uh, see somebody with a top pick overall passing on her. Yeah, I would be I would be surprised just because she's just so different than than the average uh, player. So she has a chance tonight to be the second uh, MSU women's basketball player to be picked first overall in the WNBA draft. Latoya mm-hmm. Thomas back in two thousand three was also the number one overall pick, and she was good too. She oh yeah, fantastic. Too. Coming up today in the 5 o'clock hour, we're actually going to push the college football fix back just a little bit. We are scheduled to visit with Cole Kubelik, who was the analyst on Saturday for the uh, Grove Bowl. We'll also take a look at uh, kind of a crazy night last night in the NBA. Not because we're going to do a deep dive into the NBA, but just some some of these headline stories. Wow. Two two all-time greats call it quits, and uh, another all-time great, maybe one of the, what, 10, 15 best players of all time, steps down from his job. He's just not an active player. And then some news from D1 Baseball that we're going to take a look at next. You've heard a lot about the idea of a third assistant coach for college baseball. Felt like a proposal that had a lot of support, and there wasn't much reason not to give it support, and it looks like it's going to die. Sports Talk Mississippi, two hours in the books with you on this Wednesday afternoon in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Communication system is a go. go. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Exactly. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at sportstalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey, and Brian Haydad. Glad to have you along. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. We're going to push back the college football fix just a bit for you this afternoon. And uh, we will uh, talk with Cole Kubelik coming up in uh, in just a few minutes. Right now, though, let's uh, talk a little baseball news. This is, I think it's a disappointing story, but I, I don't know if it's one where it really like changes anything dramatically for us. Borky, what's the rundown on this whole third assistant for college baseball? So this is something that that's been talked about for a long time, and and after some back and forths, there was. 
an amendment to this proposal to add the option, and that's the, the key here, is the option to have a third paid assistant in baseball. They had to add that for softball as well. So that, that was the newest layer to this story was the proposal was a third paid assistant for both sports involving hitting a ball. And the Big Ten was against it. And now, according to Kendall Rogers today, he broke the news. Uh, the Big 12 is voting no on this. I think three of the ten voted yes, but two of the ones, the biggest ones in the Big 12 uh, that are going to vote no and probably shut this thing down, were Texas and Oklahoma. Oh, I'm shocked that Texas and Oklahoma decided to do something that they think is in their best interest as opposed to the best interest of an entire sport or an entire league. And it's optional. That that's the Why, thing, though? That's the... Why, why are they voting no? Because it's not what they're best at, would be my guess. So why would they help? Texas and Oklahoma are both good at baseball. I would think it's a, like that was just a they guess. see it as giving other schools an advantage. Like, we can afford a third assistant or whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, hey, Dad, you got any read at all on this? No, it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you're talking about two of the most profitable athletic departments in all of the country. I mean, Texas has more money than just about anybody. $214 million athletic budget at Texas. And what's a third baseball assistant going to cost you? Maybe a hundred k. That's that's high end, I would think. So it's it's sort of baffling to me that they, that they wouldn't want to spend this money. I love this anecdote in the story. The Southland Conference was a unanimous yes. Sam Houston State ranks 145th in the country, and they are the number one earner in the Southland Conference, and they were a universal yes. I don't think it's a spending money thing, because that would make absolutely no sense in the grand scheme of their athletic budget. I think it's like, I think it's definitely something else, because that would make absolutely no sense. A hundred and something thousand dollars a year, if that, versus $240 million, that would make sense. They're not penny-pinching. No. It's something else. Well, and, and that's what, when I read the story, I thought, okay, there's got to be more here. You know, what what would be the rationale for saying no? Well, why, why would you vote against this if it's for the overall good of the sport? Now, if you want to really do something that's good for the sport of baseball, then you expand the 11.7 scholarships. But we don't really care about student-athletes. Can, can I just put that out there? The NCAA, the, the schools probably do more we don't really care about student athletes because if you really cared about student athletes, you would do what was right and you would provide more scholarship opportunities for sports like baseball. And you go, well, but it's an equivalency sport, and so you got to balance it out with Title IX. You'll forgive this argument because you've heard me made it make it before. It's just the most logical thing that I know how to say with regard to Title IX and balancing it. Take football out of the equation and then balance it one-to-one down the line for everybody else. Oh, well, that's not fair, Richard. That's not fair because football is a male sport. No. Football is the breadwinner. Football funds everything else, even at really small or smaller schools, non-Power 5 schools. Guess which program 
generates the most revenue? It's football. Remember when Presbyterian College came to Oxford? They played another Power 5 opponent that year. Those two games funded their entire athletic department. There you go. Presbyterian, Ole Miss paid for Presbyterian's lights on their stadium. Yep. Mm-hmm. Even at a place like that, that football still funds everything. Kendall Rogers has a tweet here. He talked to Kirby Hokut, who's the uh, athletic director at Texas Tech, who voted no. Said he prefers that money to go to student wellness and increasing grant in aid. <laughs> what? What? What does that even mean? <laughs> it's a word salad is what it is. I mean, let, let me see how many words I can use to say nothing. Well, yeah, but it's like if you use enough big words, it sounds profound. That's just a fact. If you're promoting student wellness, wouldn't having an extra coach to, you know, help promote student wellness? So t- you said that's Texas Tech? Texas Tech, yeah. See, to me, this does Does this seem like a thing? There's, all three of these schools are good at baseball, right? Yeah. Do you think it's a thing to, like, stifle the competition? It's like we don't want these schools that suck to add a third assistant and get better? That's the only thing I can come up with. I had a friend send me a text message on the, the C Spire text line. He says Texas can, quote, pay the volunteer assistant more than the other schools. He says they probably pay their volunteer assistant 100000 through camps, whereas other schools might pay 50000 through camps. Let the university start paying that assistant, and then it levels the playing field. Isn't that kind of a similar thing? Yeah. I mean... Me and your friend are thinking with our brains. Is southeastern Louisiana going to be able to pay through camp money seventy-five dollars or $100,000 to a third assistant coach? Probably not a third of that. Yeah, probably not. Can Ole Miss or Mississippi State fund a volunteer position at the rate of forty dollars to $75,000 through camp money and other various sources of income? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so this doesn't really feel any different than Texas and the Longhorn Network, right? We're going to do what's best for us. We're not worried about everybody else. Well, that's what I was about to ask. Is it really their responsibility to do what's best for the sport? Uh, no, individually it's not. But if the entire SEC can look at it and go, this is good for the sport, let's go with this. This was an SEC-led proposal. Yeah, I'm not. Is it just so they can shoot the bird at the SEC? Go, <laughs> that was your idea. We'll vote that down. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, the Texas being selfish thing makes the most sense because, as you mentioned, they did it with a television network. They one, they're not making the revenue that they could have because they did that, but they robbed the rest of their conference the ability to make more money and be more competitive because they were selfish. So that makes more sense than anything else. But isn't that keeping baseball down? It, it, wouldn't the SEC's motivation here is if schools aren't making money on baseball, and even if they are making money, it's not a whole lot, there is an opportunity to make baseball a revenue sport. It, it's Where? close in the SEC, and that's why they're all for it. Because we here, we, air quotes, in the SEC know that we're not losing money, at least on baseball, and it's very yeah, close to but- being a revenue sport. Yeah, but, I mean, that's only the case for probably five schools. But, for like, Kentucky, for example, built a brand-new stadium. Don't they do that because they think they can start nope. one day make, making money off baseball? They don't see that down the road? Never have enough t- attendance in Kentucky to make money. Never. I mean, never's a long time, but, I mean, LSU operates in the black. 
Mississippi State operates in the black. Ole Miss operates in the black. Arkansas operates in the black. I think Texas A&M does. That's it. Alabama's losing money on baseball. Auburn's losing money on baseball. Well, then what's the point? What's the point of what? Building new stadiums. What's the point of adding a third assistant coach? Just because you're not making money doesn't mean you don't want to win. And, I mean, look around. It's almost like Kentucky got shamed into building a new stadium. I assume that Missouri is eventually going to be shamed into building a new stadium. Do you want to be perennially the team that's last in the SEC because you're recruiting the same guys that everybody else is recruiting and you have a an average high school stadium and everybody else has got buildings that are nicer than most double-A ballparks? Yeah, but if you're not making money and your fan base doesn't care, why do you care? Well, maybe they don't. Maybe that's the case with the Big 12. But, I mean... It's like saying nobody cares about women's basketball. There are lots of people that care about women's basketball. Nobody's making money with women's basketball. They're losing money. There was a time where Tennessee was the exception. I don't know if that's the exception anymore or not. And Mississippi State's top five in the country in attendance. They're not making money on women's basketball. Nope. Nobody is. That doesn't mean you don't try. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Sports Talk Mississippi, Wednesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky. Hey, Dad, just split for the Diamond. Mississippi State, South Alabama tonight in some midweek baseball action. So we got Rippy in the house as well. It's time right now for the college football fix, driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and... Find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. But don't stop there. You can check out the cars, the trucks, the SUVs from Ford. You can test drive one at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. you got the spring sales event going on right now, which means great financing officer offers and cashback offers as well on the Ford car, truck, or SUV that you are most interested in. So today for the College Football Fix, we welcome in Cole Kubelik on the Farm Bureau phone line. Cole, what's up? Hey, what's up, Richard? How you doing? Hey, thanks for that uh, that FaceTime Saturday morning a couple of weeks ago. That was fun. You're welcome. Glad you got to uh, get a little inside peek at our trip to the beach that weekend. So I didn't I didn't know you were at the beach. I was just thinking that Saturday mornings at our houses were pretty similar. Kids running around in pajamas and you know trying to find <laughs> donuts or whatever else. It definitely was uh, mayhem, which is pretty much every morning in our household. So. Hey, so so you were in Oxford last weekend, and you know spring games, wh- whatever. They're they're glorified scrimmages. They're they're not always. In the case of Ole Miss, they don't split up into two teams. It was offense versus defense. So with that as the backdrop, what did you learn from the Ole Miss spring game, uh, the Grove Bowl last Saturday? The biggest takeaway for me is just what those two coordinators are going to mean to that football team and just how different things are going to be based on what they now have at the two coordinator spots. I think when you look at a lot of folks who try to make the argument that, well, those are the head coaches in waiting, you know, I, number one, I don't buy that. I look at the commitment that Ross Bjork and Matt Luke put with them on three-year contracts, the amount of money that they gave them. It shows me that they're committed to helping Matt Luke build a championship-level football team. But most importantly, when I went back before that game, 
And I watched Ole Miss last year, and we can talk personnel, fundamentals, all we want. But two things that really stuck out to me, aside from some of those things, were there were a lot of times, maybe the majority of the time, that both sides of the football were coached with a reckless nature and lacked responsibility a lot of the time. Because in my opinion, when you when you coach offense, you coach defense, you, you're coaching that side of the ball to help your team win a game. It's not a competition to see who can have the most yards. And it's not a competition to see who can have the most tackle for losses or sacks or blitzes or whatever. Now, those things happen and help you win. That's great. But it was irresponsible to see second and fours and deep balls being thrown against a five-man box or a six-man box on second and two and see a pass thrown downfield and go incomplete. That, to me, is irresponsible coaching. And I think now, I mean, defensively was just, I mean, even worse. You're talking about some sort of a slant, some sort of a blitz, some sort of a twist, some sort of a stunt on 90, 85% of plays. And you can't make a living doing that. Not against good coaches and good players. You're just not. And I think now what you have is two guys who are not only good coordinators, and they both are. I think Mike McIntyre and uh, is, is a good defensive coordinator. I think Rich Rodriguez is a, is a brilliant offensive mind. But the head coaching experience to me is what's going to become more valuable. And where a lot of people look at this and think that it may be some sort of a negative or some sort of a distraction down the road, I actually think there's value in it. Because those guys understand how to coach to win football games. And they're not out there coaching to pile up yards and pile up touchdowns and yards per carry and sacks and pressures and tackles for loss. They want to do what they need to do on their side of the ball to win football games. I also believe, based on what's coming back, schematically, as far as the foundation of what makes those two systems go, the personnel is going to be a little bit of a better fit. You know, Benito Jones is not going to be buried over the nose guard position anymore. He'll be able to go out wide and potentially help make more plays. Kadir Shepard's a guy who's really going to benefit. I mean, that guy was down taking on double teams between tackles and tight ends, playing on the defensive line last year at you know, 245, 250. This shouldn't be happening. And then offensively, I think, I think Matt Corral's a guy that has pretty good wheels and can move. And Rich Rodriguez will utilize that. I don't think he'll make a living on it. You can go back and look at Matt Smith's numbers at Arizona. He threw forward 3,200 yards and I think 27 touchdowns. That was the comp that Rich Rod gave us. So we get a little consumed with the Khalil Tate, Denard Robinson, right. Pat White. I don't think that offense has to be that. I think it was that because of what Rich Rod had those seasons. So I think just the, the overall understanding of conceptual football, how to win football games from the coordinator spots, will help Matt Luke and help Ole Miss in the future. That was actually my biggest takeaway after sitting down with those guys, talking football, talking X's and O's, and just getting a better understanding of what they were all about. So basically, Matt Luke hired two SEC-level coordinators. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, potentially two SEC-level head coaches. I mean, yeah. to, 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 think that, to think that Colorado thought it was a good idea to run Mike McIntyre is laughable, a joke. It, and it plays right into everything else that we say right now about Pac-12 football. I mean, guys, actually both of those guys have been – Pac-12 coach of the years. and yeah. But for Mike McIntyre to do it at Colorado, the way that he was doing it, and to have a couple injuries and fall off for one year, 
and think you're going to go get somebody better is an absolute joke. So both of those guys are high caliber Division One head coaching material, and they just happen to be two of the best candidates out there, and Matt Luke was able to go get them. Cole, uh, this is not a, a piling on thing, but the the complexity level of the offense this year will will clearly be elevated, given that it is a more complex offense, and probably will take a little bit longer to uh, to to understand for everybody, and also to install for everybody. How quickly can Ole Miss kind of be up to speed offensively with what Rich Rodriguez wants to do? Because the first two games of the season on the road against Memphis and home against Arkansas, I mean, it's it's weird to call the first two games of the season swing games, but those games are so important for the overall success of Ole Miss. I don't know if you can overstate that enough. No, I agree with that. And when you look at the rest of the schedule, you know, it's but they're going to need to get some early, and I think they can get – I think it was four out of the first five when I looked at it that I think they could realistically get. They're not getting Alabama. Yeah. But right. I, I think when, when you think about what's going to be put on those guys – I mean, Rich Rod told us he put it all on him. Said he essentially just dumped the playbook. Said there's no reason that he feels like he should hold back. There's no reason that they should sort of try to piece it together. That they want to go out there and run what they run, and they want everybody to know what the scheme is. So, I think that the majority of it is in. I think it'll be shown early in the season, and the reasons for that are, you know, the long-term vision that they know that they're going to be around. Why did Mac Brown hire Phil Longo? Well, that's that's a good one. I, I don't. I can't give you a great answer for it. Um, you know, like I know, that a lot of times in this business, favors are done, friends are hired over who might be the better candidate. So that can be a real thing. I'm not going to pretend like that's not. I think Mac Brown probably understands that in order to have success in today's college football, you got to be able to throw it. You probably need to go fast if you don't have the personnel that you can line up and run it. And felt like Phil Longo still put up numbers and still put up points. And that still gave his team a chance to win football games. Now, you want to dissect it like I just did and say that at times it was irresponsible and at times it was high risk. I'll I'll still believe that and I still think that. But maybe that's the way that Mac Brown, playing in that conference with the players that he has, feels like he needs to build his team. Maybe he feels like that's what his team is going to be best suited to do. Well, and and the Longo offense has put up big numbers against inferior teams. Are, is it maybe there are more inferior teams in the ACC than than what you're facing uh, on a week in week out basis in the SEC? And I, I'm yeah, not like trying to like take a shot at the conference. No, I think it's these. Well, I mean, top to bottom, the conference isn't as good. Let's just be honest. It's right. not. Not with not with Miami and Florida State, not where they need to be. And I think NC State, losing Eli Drinkwitz, losing Ryan Finley, is going to take a step back this year. Uh, I think Broncos doing some good things in Charlottesville. That may be a program that's sort of improving. But, I mean, you try to convince me that there's a team that can even compete with Clemson to win a conference championship there. There's not. There literally is not one. So I don't think the conference is good top to bottom. But I... I don't think you would ever look at, a, at an offensive coordinator and say, well, our competition's not as good. They feasted on, on lower competition, so he'll be a good fit here. I, I just think it's a style. And, you know, they feasted on, on inferior competition last year because they had elite athletes in certain spots, and it wasn't complicated. It just wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it was a 
It was a PPO offense. It was a pass-pass option offense. I don't even know what the option was. Straight between two passes, I guess. But it almost wasn't even one that, that had options. I mean, when we talked to Longo before the Vanderbilt game, you know, we said, what, what percentage do you believe you know has an RPO attached? He's like, everything. All of it. Wow. There's a pass tagged to everything. So sometimes that can be good, but at other times, I think that just takes away from your mentality. That takes away from who you are. When you know that you can come up and just throw a slip screen or throw a slant instead of lining up and run the ball and gaining two yards for a first down, I mean, that can get you in trouble as far as just who you are and what your identity is. Thanks for the candid insight, Cole. No problem, Richard. It's always good catching up. You too, man. Let's talk soon. All right. See you. That's Cole Kublik on the Farm Bureau phone line. More coming up with you. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank studio. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.